everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, and alongside me is my co-host, Josh Molina. Josh, how are you doing, man? I'm doing great. Another great show here. Another moment in Strike Force history. Looking forward to talking about it. Yeah. All right. So for our listeners, our new listeners especially, Inside the Hexagon is about walking through the major events, fighters, and milestones of Strike Force, which was a very important and innovative MMA promotion that existed from 2006 until 2013 and on today's episode we are going to be discussing strike force heavy artillery which took place on may 15 2010 in st louis missouri the event featured as you might guess based on the event name some some real heavy hitters uh, in the main event alistair overeem would return to strike force to defend his heavyweight title for the first time since winning it over two and a half years prior to this event and standing across the cage would be brett rogers who had lost to fedor emelianenko in his most recent fight Wow, Alistair Overeem defended that title about as much as the fabulous Moolah did there for a little while. There. <laughs> I mean, not very often. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Let me let me chime in here a little bit here. Um, this was a big show for Strike Force because it was their attempt to bounce back from the the Nashville disaster. So they were trying to put on a good show after the the, the public relations fallout but let me read from dave Meltzer from the wrestling observer who sort of puts the the moment in co- in context whatever it is strike force got thrown off the horse on 417 and on 515 in st louis it was the time to get back on it ended up being an ordinary show better live than on television because of a lot of impressive performances on the undercard the biggest story coming out of the show is Strike Force heavyweight champion Alistair Overeem, two and a half years after winning the title, made his first title defense look easy with a one-sided win over Brett Rogers. The win leaves the company one match away from what should be the biggest match in its history, an Overeem title defense against Fedor Emelianenko. You know, Phil, we talked a lot about Nashville ruining Strike Force. We didn't really talk about the upset of, of Fabricio Verdum beating Emelianco. We're going to talk about it when we get there. But, you know, there's probably a couple of big moments here that sort of took strike force in a direction that nobody saw coming. Yeah, you know, and we will talk more about the Fedor thing, the Fedor loss for sure. Um, I mean, he looked he was made to look human in the Brett Rogers fight. So you could kind of see a little bit of the writing on the wall, a guy who's not an elite heavyweight, a guy that probably a couple years prior Fedor would have put away with no problem. Uh, you know, time, time does no jobs, right? Time, time, time doesn't job out to anybody and, and it catches up with everybody. And uh, so, yeah, we talk about the Nashville situation being so, you know, detrimental to strike force, but watching the deterioration of Fedor, a guy that really was the only, I'll say he's the only difference maker, but like a guy that could actually stand up against the UFC on his own talent that had never been with that promotion, had never, you know, bowed at the the throne of Dana and a guy that you could really build around, uh, you know, like I, I, I'm thinking things might be different if he had been really still in his prime and, and continue to dominate like he had before. So, but we'll, we'll get to all that, of course, for sure. And we'll get to it soon because that card is is coming up very, very soon. So. Uh, but also on this card would be Bigfoot Silva, Andre Arlovsky, Rafael Fejau, Kevin Randleman, Hodger Gracie, and Jacare Souza. So some big names on here. Uh, but but yeah, so lots lots to talk about on this card. I uh, want to mention Inside the Hexagon is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. You can check out their shows on the network at 
evergreenpodcast.com. But let's get to the fallout from Strikeforce Nashville. And I mean, man, where do you start? The biggest thing coming out of that event was, of course, the post-fight main event, or I'm sorry, the post-main event brawl between Mayhem Miller, Jake Shields, Nick, and Nate Diaz, Gilbert Melendez, and others. The event would effectively cancel any future plans for Strikeforce to be featured on CBS which I believe really might have changed the course of MMA history as we've discussed on previous episodes. Because remember, the UFC was still a year away from debuting on Fox. So imagine if Strikeforce, you know, they had pulled uh, between 4 and 5 million viewers for the first Fedor card on CBS. And this this one was right around 3 million. So, a, you know, pretty sizable drop. But if they had continued to be able to build up and, you know, gone in, you know, averaging 4 or 5 million viewers and, and I mean, who knows what could have happened with Strikeforce and, uh, you know, solidifying the relationships with CBS. Uh, I mean, again, it's just hard to predict what might have happened there. But uh, obviously things are, are different at coming out of Nashville. And then a week after the event, Strikeforce middleweight champion Jake Shields was seen cage side at a WEC event sitting next to Dana White, who threw his arm around the free agent, exclaiming, he's mine. So the question was, you know, would he st- would the champ stay or would he go? What would happen to the title? This wouldn't be answered for a couple of months, but we'll get there. And then also we had a new Strikeforce light heavyweight champion as King Mo had out-wrestled Gegard Mousasi to capture the title with the charismatic new champion become the next big thing in Strikeforce. And then what was next for Dan Henderson, who was a huge free agent signing uh, for, for Strikeforce, and then he lost and, and didn't look very good in that loss to Shields. And so what was next for him? What was next for Gilbert Melendez, who defended his title, his lightweight title against Shinya Aoki? So lots of questions to be answered coming out of Nashville. None of those questions would be answered during this event. Uh, but it, it, this was an opportunity, as Josh, as you pointed out, that uh, uh, Meltzer had said that, you know, this was an opportunity to get back on the horse. So let's talk about some of the the key fight announcements and, and different things that were going on leading up to Strike Force Heavy Artillery. Both Fedor and Bobby Lashley were supposed to appear in St. Louis on this card, but they both got moved with Fedor headlining the upcoming June card in San Jose against Fabricio Verdun and Lashley heading to the upcoming Los Angeles card also taking place in June. In March of 2010, it was confirmed that Alistair Overeem would face off with Brett Rogers, though it wasn't confirmed right away that the, the, uh, the title would be on the line in that tilt. Uh, that confirmation would come before the end of the month. And as a reminder, Overeem had won the Strikeforce heavyweight title back in November of 2007 with a stoppage win over Paul Buentello, but had not returned to the hexagon since, leaving the heavyweight division in limbo. Scott Coker was asked around this time why his champion had been gone for so long and stated that some of his some of the some of it was K1 contractual obligations, some of it was injuries, some of it was just timing. But now that Reem was back, he was hoping to spotlight him regularly in strike force. In fact, I believe he said like every other month. Uh, the champ would come back to take on Rogers, who had had a good showing early on against Fedor the previous fall in uh, Strikeforce, but had been laid down at the feet of the last emperor after a barrage of punches going down in defeat. Later, a bout between Rafael Feijão and Antoine the Juggernaut Brit was announced, and the winner of that bout was promised the next shot at King Mo's light heavyweight title. Also announced was an intriguing lightweight scrap between the undefeated Lyle Fancy Pants Beer Bomb and former top 155-er Vitor Shaolin Ribeiro. We'll talk more about that fight later. And then rounding out the main card would be a light heavyweight matchup between Hodger Gracie and Kevin Randleman, as well as a heavyweight battle between Bigfoot Silva and Andre Arlovsky. 
Uh, interesting side note in, in that uh, lightweight pioneer Norofumi Kid Yamamoto, who was contracted with Dream, was going to c- compete on heavy artillery and was scheduled to take on Federico Lopez. However, due to some schedule changes with Dream, the bout was moved to a May 29th event for that promotion instead, and Yamamoto would never fight for Strike Force. All right, let's talk about the UFC champions. During this time, uh, there was a new strike for, or I'm sorry, new UFC light heavyweight champion in Mauricio Shogun Hua. More on that in a minute. Uh, but we still had Frankie Edgar. Edgar as the lightweight title holder, GSP and Anderson Silva still holding their titles respectively, and Brock Lesnar still the heavyweight kingpin. The closest UFC event to Strike Force Heavy Artillery was UFC 113, took place on May 8th, the week before this event. And on that main on the main card, Kimbo Slice lost his second and final bout uh, with the UFC when he was TKO'd in the second round by Matt Mitrione. And then in the co-main event, I, I mean, we tend to say one of the most X, you know, in MMA history a lot. I tend to, to do that a lot. I This has got to be one of the most controversial fights in, in UFC history because in the co-main event, Josh Koscheck defeated Paul Daly uh, by decision. So before we, we jump into this, uh, Josh, do you remember that fight? Do you remember? Do you know where I'm going with this? I remember the fight. Obviously, Koscheck had a reputation for being, um, well, you know, not everyone got along with him, and uh, his 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 fighting style as well was very frustrating, especially for a guy like Paul Daly, who is literally a turtle on his back on the ground. So, so yeah, I know where you're going with this, and I got some stuff to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I but and I Josh Koscheck is one of um the my least favorite fighters if I can put it that way. I was never a Koscheck fan. I didn't like his style. I I could not stand, you know, I watched the entire Ultimate Fighter season 1. I think it's one of two full seasons that I watched. I watched the I think season 3 which was the uh Ken and Tito <laughs> uh season, but I I just I couldn't stand Koscheck. I couldn't stand his attitude. I was never a fan of his. I was never a fan of his style. And, you know, so we go into this fight and as was often the case when he would fight, there was a lot of animosity in the buildup to the match. And once the bell rang, Koscheck, Koscheck pretty much took Daly down again and again, which, I mean, you know, that's smart, right? I mean, the way that Daly's going to beat you is on the feet. You're not a great striker, so why not? You know, you're a, a you know, a high-level wrestler, so it made sense, but frustrated daily frustrated the crowd um at one point daily gouged cost checks his le- cost checks left eye and and then after the final bell you and i watched it the just the end of, of this on youtube but uh, after the final bell daily makes it seem like the crowd is booing like crazy daily makes it seem like he's going to go over to you know kind of congratulate cost check but instead uh as dan mergliata the referee kind of moves out of the way daily throws a cheap shot left hook that didn't even seem to phase cost and you know, Mer- Mergliata immediately grabs Daly and pins him against the, uh, you know, the cage. And he's like, Paul, what are you thinking? What are you doing? But damage was done, so to speak. And Dana White immediately, I watched the the clip of the press conference right afterwards, and Dana immediately fired uh, uh, Daly and promised we would never see him back in the octagon. He said, I mean, he just like was like, I don't care if he goes all over the world beats everybody takes every <laughs> title I, I mean he literally was like saying all this like i i don't care if he is the best you know the consensus best welterweight in the world uh he will never ever be back in the octagon never back in the ufc and he's like you know it's unfortunate because he's a talented guy i do think he's one of the best in the world but this just is not 
acceptable in any way, shape or form he's done. And, uh, you know, Dana stuck to his guns. I mean, uh, Daly's on his last, the last legs of his career and he's never been back and, and that's it. And, you know, uh, I, I saw a thing where, uh, Dana said that, um, that daily initially claimed that he hadn't heard the final bell, which is just, mm-hmm. you know, ridiculous. And, uh, you know, and, but then lady later daily did apologize, but it was just too late. He never, never fought in the UFC again. It just, it just unfortunate. Well, I do think it's a little bit of a BS move by Dana White. I, I think Dana White should have probably given him a second chance at some point. I guess we have to put it into context in that, at this time, the UFC is trying to get on Fox. They're trying to go mainstream. They're still trying to represent the sport as though one day it's going to be like basketball, baseball, football, right up there, mainstream. And they're doing everything they can to remove any semblance of the fact that it's a backyard or brawl or bar fight. And so... I can see why Dana White had to take that stern approach. There were probably sponsors who would have complained, um, maybe the network executives. But give me a break, dude. Um, You know, Mike Tyson bit part of Evander Holyfield's ear off. He came back to fight. Of course, he was a big draw, and that's the difference. But but Paul Daly... Exactly. That's the difference right there. (laughs) But, yeah, but, I mean, Paul Daly could have been a draw. I mean, he's still a guy who commands a good uh salary wherever he fights he's got knockout power i mean he he's a lit- he's a good talker he's extremely entertaining he goes after it. he's one i would say he's one of my favorite fighters but he is a fighter that i really really enjoyed watching for sure yeah he's got that british accent they all sound so much cooler <laughs> when they talk <laughs> yeah. you know it's all this sophisticated british accent but he's knocking guys out cold so i don't know i think he should have given him a shot because I think we missed an opportunity to see Paul Daly in his prime in the UFC against the best fighters in the world. Yeah, no, I, I, I can't disagree with you on that. I, 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 but at the same time, I mean, you're at this point, you're trying to get on network TV. I'm sure he's working on that and you just, and you ju- and coming just coming off of the, the Nashville situation, you know, and then you have essentially what could have turned into the same thing. I mean, in the Nashville situation, no, uh, you know, it wasn't like a direct punch like that. It was more of a scrum and, you know, punches being thrown, but nothing as clear as this. And, and so, you know, to have that, I, I honestly, I don't blame Dana. Like I get your point. I get your side of it for sure. But you just like, come on, man. Like that is the golden rule in this thing that when the fight is over, the fight is over and you can't allow that kind of stuff. You know, what kind of precedent do you set? So I, I get what you're saying, but I got to say, I agree with Dane on this one. I I think it's, I think it was good that he did that. I don't know if I would have banned him for life, you know, but it would have been for a long, long time. So, yeah, you know, and you make a point, it is difference between him and Coker. I mean, Dana White is like the, the alpha father of the household. Like if you break the rules, you're screwed. You're not going out. You're in your room. And, and Scott Coker is much more laid back, you know? Yes. But here's the funny thing, Dana, in that clip, in the press conference, he said, essentially, like, we're one of the most lenient organizations in the world. He did say that, you know? Yeah. So, like, and, and and there have been, you know, Dana is a, you know, a, I don't want to call him a conservative, but he's definitely like a libertarian and, you know, kind of the, you know, which is the basis of that is live and let live. And he may not agree with everything, but he really believes in personal freedom and, you know, personal choice, as long as it's not going to, be detrimental to others. And so, you know, there's guys that do stupid stuff that I'm like expecting him to blow his top over. And he's, you know, they'll say personal stuff about him, 
You know what I'm saying? Like how many times have guys said personal stuff about Dana? As long as you don't talk about his family, I've never heard anybody talk about his family. So that's the one line I don't think anybody's ever crossed. Um, I know he's got kids, but that's like really all I know. I don't know anything about his personal life. And, and so that seems to be the line that nobody crosses, but outside of that, I mean, people have said really bad things about him and then come back and done business with them and all that. So Dana will forgive like Dana will, you know, it's kind of like another area where him and Vince McMahon are, are similar is that if there's money to be made, you know, they'll, they'll forgive and, and, you know, and move on. But, you know, Daly never got that chance right or wrong. You know, he never got that opportunity. Maybe if it had been like a, you know, a GSP or a John Jones or somebody, I mean, God, how many times has John Jones been forgiven? You know? So, so who knows, but, uh, but yeah. And I wonder how he would handle if it was today, you know, uh, UFC's position's much stronger and could, could stand the heat more, but you know, yeah, <laughs> we don't know. So, uh, but in the main event of that event, uh, in the main event of that, that, that card, Shogun Hua knocked out Lyoto Machida in the first round to win the light heavyweight crown. And this was a rematch from about between the two, uh, the previous October, which Machida won by a very, very close decision. Uh, I believe all three of the judges scored at 48-47, or two of the three did. And Dana said afterwards that he actually thought that Hua had won that fight. And so they booked the rematch. And with this title win, Shogun became only the second fighter to win titles in both Pride and the UFC. After UFC 113, we did have a Strikeforce Challengers event uh, that came up. This was announced in April that there was going to be a May Challengers card. It would be headlined by a bout between Matt Lindland and Kevin Casey, a former Hicks and Gracie protege. In addition, rising star Roger Bowling had signed with Strikeforce. He was somebody that I worked with a fair amount uh, doing, I, I did some PR for him when he was fighting with a regional promotion called MMA Big Show. Good looking guy, uh, talented fighter, got some fights in Strike Force, never made it to the UFC. Uh, but he would make his Strike Force debut against a, the very, very tough Bobby Volker. Also on the card, Tywin Woodley, who was undefeated at 6 0 at the time, would take on Nathan Coy. And both UFC vet Jason Lambert and future Strike Force welterweight champ Tarek Safadine would compete as well. So a very stacked card. Uh, at the event, Linlin would TKO Casey. Bowling would take a decision win over Volker, which I believe was ended early because of an inadvertent eye poke. And they went to the judges' decisions and bowling, uh, judges' decision of bowling won. And then they did a rematch. I want to say they may have even fought three total times. So they ended up fighting a couple times at least. Woodley would get a split decision nod. Safadine would knock out Nate Moore. And Lambert would get submitted. So lots of action on that card for sure. But here we are. We have arrived at Strikeforce Heavy Artillery. It took place on May 15, 2010 at the Scott Trade Center in St. Louis, Missouri, with 8,136 fans in attendance. We had Gus Johnson, Mara Ranallo, and Frank Shamrock back on the call for this one with Jimmy Lennon Jr. again as the ring announcer. And the event drew an estimated 308,000 viewers with a peak of 448,000 on Showtime. All right, on the undercard, we do have a couple uh, notable notable names, so we'll get to those. But at 205 pounds, Daryl Cobb defeated Booker DeRouse via split decision. And then Michael Chandler at 170 pounds, not 155, but 170 pounds, defeated Salvador Woods via rear, rear naked, or via submission coming by way of rear naked choke at 59 seconds of the first round. And this was Chandler's second and final strike force fight. Uh, I would have loved to have some, seen him continue in strike force. It would have been awesome to see him face, you know, maybe maybe not right away because he was so early in his career, but take on Gilbert Melendez or Josh Thompson, you know, a year or two down the line. I, that would have been really cool. I would have liked to have seen uh, Chandler stay with with uh, with Strikeforce for a while. 
Yeah, I mean, Chandler's great. He's had so many good fights. He's a total scrapper. Uh, like Ben Askren, though, it's too bad. They, for whatever reasons, you know, they waited too long to get into the UFC. And, and you know, now we're seeing Chandler. He's already lost. We don't really know. But, yeah, you know, Chandler, great fighter. It's too bad we didn't see him stay in strike force, which certainly would have been a path to the UFC for sure. Yeah, I, I definitely would have seen him, especially with his level of talent and his uh, willingness to work hard, you know, get get ported over to the UFC when they bought the promotion. So, all right. And then at 205 pounds, Francisco France defeated Lee Brousseau via submission come by way of rear naked choke at 127 of the first round. At 157 pounds, Tom Aaron defeated Eric Steenberg via submission come by way of guillotine at 56 seconds of the first round. 155 pounds, Matt Reithouse, excuse me, Matt Ricehouse defeated Greg Wilson Jr. via submission come by way of rear naked choke at 45 seconds of the third round, 172 pound bout. Jesse Finney, who was a local favorite in St. Louis, defeated Justin DeMoney via submission come by way of guillotine at 322 of the first round. Man, that's a lot of, that's a lot of submissions. That was, uh, let's see here. That was one, two, three, four, five submissions in a row. So <laughs> lots, lots, of, lots, put, of sub- that, lots of tapping out. That should have been the Strike Force Nashville show. That would have been a lot yeah, more entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, instead of instead of all the uh, all the decisions. Uh, all right, and then uh, in the, I guess what we would call the main event, as I like to say, of the undercard, Lau Beerbomb defeated Vitor Ribeiro via split decision, and Shallon Ribeiro, uh, he was a fantastic BJJ competitor. He had won multiple competitions in that sport across the world. He had been one of the top MMA lightweights in the world at one point, had won several titles and various promotions. He'd beaten fighters such as Tetsuya Kawajiri, Yoichim Hansen, and Mitsuhiro Ishida. Uh, however, he'd lost two of his last three at this point, was coming off a decision loss to Shinya Aoki. This was Lyle's third fight with Strikeforce. He was undefeated at 12-0 and coming in, and he'd beaten Ray Perales and Bang Ludwig inside the Hexagon prior to this bout. Uh, so this was his chance to take on one of the, you know, a guy that was not – not considered one of the best in the world anymore at this point, but still a, a very, you know, a top lightweight in Shallon Ribeiro. And uh, as a side note, I was working with Lyle at this time. I believe I was managing. And in fact, I, I think I was managing him. And, and I, I am almost positive that I spoke with Rich Chow, Strikeforce matchmaker at that time to talk about the fight and, you know, yeah, we'll accept it. And the purse, I mean, he was contracted at a certain rate. So there wasn't like, I, you know, I wasn't in a position to ask for more money and definitely didn't have the experience to know whether or not to ask for more money. And I don't remember the numbers, but you know, again, there really wasn't much of a negotiation and Lyle just needed a fight. So I really wanted to be there. I wanted to be in St. Louis for this, but I was in North Carolina for another event and we'll, we'll talk more about that later. And I was being paid to be in North Carolina. My deal with, with Lyle was like, essentially I would get a cut of sponsorships. Um, you know, I didn't get any money of, of his, you know, pay or of his show and, and win money and that sort of thing. So I would have had to fly to St. Louis on my own dime and, you know, be there in that position. And so, uh, you know, I was getting paid to be in North Carolina for that event, so that was a pretty easy decision. Uh, I could not find video or a description of the fight, um, so I, unfortunately I don't really have any insight into that, but it was obviously close. close. Uh, and both fighters will be back in strike force in the future, so we'll talk more about them down the line. But here we are at the main card uh, in the opener at 205 pounds. Feijao Cavalcante defeated... Antoine Britt, the juggernaut, via KO, coming by way of punches at 345 of the first round. Feijal was 8-2 and two coming into this one with seven knockouts and one submission. He had 
He had won four of his last five, which included a knockout win over Aaron Rosa at a Challengers event the previous November. The juggernaut, for his part, was 12-3 and three with 10 KOs and three decisions. He had made his strike force debut at Evolution the previous December, getting a first-round doctor stoppage win over Scott Lighty. And also he had competed on the Ultimate Fighter Season 8, so, you know, recognizable name there. Getting into the action itself, this was all on the feet with strikes leading uh, to lots of clinches against the cage. A couple minutes in, Britt landed a dirty boxing uppercut that staggered Feijal for a second, but he quickly recovered. Britt clearly carried a lot of power in his strikes, but he seemed pretty wild to me. I, lots of winging strikes, not a lot of technique to him. And uh, but the, and the end came after the ref had separated the two following another clinch and the two re-engaged in the center of the cage. Feijal landed a looping overhand right that caught Britt right on the chin and the juggernaut was clearly hurt. The Brazilian saw his opportunity, landed several more shots, really good shots, pushing Britt back against the cage. And one of those turned the lights out and just a, a great finish. I thought it was a, a good win for Feijal. Britt really was not respecting Feijao's power. Uh, he was just going in there. Not a lot of great stand-up boxing skills. He was just uh, throwing, you know, looping punches. And and Feijao was just uh, more precise, and, and he caught him. Um, it, you know, he didn't really have a game plan, and I think that's kind of the story of a lot of the fights that we're going to be talking about. Just the uh, bad game plans, inability to execute, and Britt really not thinking about how can I actually beat this guy as opposed to just let me go in there and we'll see what happens. Uh, Feijal was just more precise in his, in his punching and the knockout was, uh, was pretty dramatic. Yeah. Yeah. And this, I mean, again, this is a heavy artillery. This is a case of a couple heavy hitters going at it. And I, Feijal was just a better fighter, you know, and just look better, just look better. So, uh, but this would be the first time that Britt had been stopped via strikes in his MMA career and began a career-ending slide for the juggernaut. He would compete two more times, both on Strikeforce Challenger cards, losing to Ovint St. Pro and Lumumba Sayers to end his career at 12-6. and Feijal would be back a few months later to take on King Mo for the title, as promised. And, of course, we will talk about that in the future. All right, the next bout, another 205-pound bout. Hodger Gracie defeated Kevin Randleman via submission come by way of rear naked choke at 410 of the second round. Gracie was very early in his MMA career. He was only 2-0 at, at the time, but he had submitted uh, Ron Waterman and Yuki Kondo in his only only bouts, both notable names. He was a multiple-time world champion in, in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, as you might expect based on his last name, uh, and he was carrying on the family name in MMA. Randleman at 17 and 14 was a, a former strike force, or I'm sorry, former UFC heavyweight champion. He had not had a good start to his strike force career, having dropped a decision to Mike Whitehead in the previous June in St. Louis. So he had a chance for redemption back in the same city in the same cage. Uh, he had also lost via split decision in, J in Japan in November. So he really needed to right the ship here. And it was really essentially do or die for the monster. And they talked a little bit about that on the, uh, on the commentary, but once the action started, you could see Gracie had such a huge height and reach advantage on the much shorter Randleman. Gracie was 6'4", Randleman was 5'10". Uh, you know, it was, you could just, I mean, come on, that's a good six inches right there. And so massive, massive height and reach damage, uh, uh, sorry, massive height and reach advantage. Not a ton of action over the first few minutes. Felt like the, you know, each fighter was kind of waiting for the other to do something and you know, I, I got to say, like, I think it's worth stopping and kind of talking about Randleman here. I, I really, you know, being a fan of Pride back in the day and, uh, 
um, you know, seeing Randleman, you know, when he picked up Fedor and dumped him on his head and seeing him knock out Krokop. I mean, he was just, his fight with Rampage was a great fight. I mean, seeing, you know, he would lose most of these fights, but he would have these moments. I mean, they're just so explosive. I mean, you need know, the thickest like legs, like thighs. I mean, he, he could jump like out. Of, it seemed like he could jump out of the cage in a single bound if he wanted to. I mean, he was so explosive, but he just, he was a throwback. He never learned to be a great striker. He never really learned submissions. Uh, and, and, you know, so all he really had was his wrestling and, you know, he just hadn't even really progressed in that. And so, you know, he dealt with a lot of injuries over the years and, and all that. So, I mean, it would have been nice to see him show him. I mean, I would think he would have had a striking advantage over Gracie, but he was either unwilling or unable to get inside and take advantage of it. And so it was always frustrating for me to watch him, um, these, you know, these, especially in these strike force fights where it's like, he, I think he was more talented and more athletic than his opponent, but he just never really seemed to get out be able to get out of his own way. And I just think, I feel like it was a mental thing, but also just not, not evolving as a mixed martial artist. And it just, yeah, it's, it's kind of, and then knowing, you know, kind of what happened to him and, you know, where he ended up, it, it was, it's kind of tough to watch him anyways, but uh, very little action to speak of in the first round. You know, I didn't really know who to call it for. Morrow and Frank gave it to Gracie, 10-9, which works for me. Things did pick up in the second with Randleman landing a thudding 1-2 to Gracie's body early on, but Gracie answered with a nice right hook. And then later in the round, Gracie blasted Randleman. He had him and he had his hands behind his head in the, you know, the Muay Thai plum clinch and landed a nice knee and dropped the former champion. And then Gracie got Randleman on his back and was able to advance the position. He got got the back with a figure four body lock on. And from there, it was just a matter of time. And Gracie continued to work the hands to get the choke in while Randleman desperately tried to survive, but it was just a matter of time. And the, the BJJ master got the arm under the chin and, and chin and put Randleman to sleep. You know, honestly, neither one of these guys to me looked like they belonged in the hexagon on that night. And I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, offending the Gracie family or anything, but, but, you know, Hodger Gracie just looks like he should be playing beach volleyball somewhere. He does not look like a fighter. And, you know, he's got this, like, this young boyish face on this giant body. He just, he he does not look like somebody you would ever be afraid of. Obviously, he's a jiu-jitsu master and he had a great pedigree, but he just did not belong there. I, I was not impressed by him. He reminded me of Baron Corbin. It was just like, what are you doing here? You're trying too hard. You're in the wrong thing. Go do something else. I know you have a few options because you're a Gracie, so you've got to do it. But on the other hand, Randleman, you know, you touched on it. He just looks so much of a shell of himself. He was, he was washed up. He didn't have anything left. And when you're used to watching a fighter who's so good with so much uh, talent who's so explosive and then you're just kind of waiting for them to do something it's it's really frustrating he he was too tentative he he couldn't get really you know he couldn't deal with the range that gracie had and uh it just kind of looked like the sport had had passed him up and that rear naked choke was tight and uh, i felt bad for him because it looked like he went out out for sure yeah i, I honestly i think this would have been better on the undercard and mm. and put the beer bomb Ribeiro fight on the main card, but yeah, can't disagree with any of that. Um, Gracie would move to three and zero with this, and we'd see him back in Strikeforce multiple times in the future. But this would be it for the monster in Strikeforce, and he would only compete one more time in MMA. He got armbarred in Russia at an event in 2011 to end his career at 17 and 16, and 
You know, very sadly, he died at age 44 in 2016 from complications from pneumonia while he was on a trip for a job interview. Uh, so, you know, just, I mean, his body had been gone, his body had gone through so much. And, you know, I, I don't know if he ever test, ever tested positive for steroids or anything like that. I'm not saying that he, that he did. I mean, his body was, you know, <laughs> it looked like it, but, you know, I, I don't know that for a fact. I mean, he did fight in Japan for a long time and, you know, very, uh, very, light drug testing there so who knows but you know he he definitely put his body through a lot you remember the the story uh that scott coker related in our our very very first episode on this podcast where he talked about having dinner with with randleman and him showing the hole that he had in his armpit from the staph infection and all that i mean he just he'd been through so much physically and just very very sad that he passed away at you know, the relatively young age of 44. Uh, he was enshrined to the UFC Hall of Fame in 2020, so his place in, in MMA history is secured. He's one of the the early UFC heavyweight champions. So I mean, he'll go. You know, he's gone down in history. But just just unfortunate. Exactly what you said. The the sport had passed him by. He didn't evolve with it, and you know, and and so that was really the end of uh, of Randleman. So uh, unfortunate ending to to a career of a, a very you know universally loved guy that just, you know, he always did his best and just wasn't enough towards the the latter part of his career. All right, 185-pound fight. Jacare Souza defeated Joey Villasenor via unanimous decision. Villasenor was 27-6 and coming in with 12 knockouts and 10 submissions. That's a, for a guy with over 25 wins, that is an excellent finishing rate of 81%. He had competed three times previously in strike force, although technically at least one of those was an elite XC bout. Uh, He lost to Ninja Hua. But he did beat Ryan Jensen and Cyborg Santos. Villasenor was on a four-fight win streak, which included the Jensen and Cyborg victories, as well as wins over Ricky Fukuda and Phil Baroni in Elite XC. So he was, uh, you know, he was on a good streak here. Jacare, 11-2, 10 submission wins. He was coming off an arm triangle submission win over Matt Lindland at Evolution the previous December, which had gotten Jacare back into the win column after a no contest with Mayhem Miller and a loss to Gegard Mousasi. And on the broadcast, Morrow had called Jacare the future of Strike Force's middleweight division, and he had a chance to prove that here. So getting into the fight itself, the two, they felt things out at the beginning, but Jacare clearly wanted to get Villasenor to the mat right away. And he did early on, but instead of going for submissions, he was dropping punches from full mountain. You know, he looked to to be landing, and but Shamrock pointed out astutely that the Brazilian was too high up in the mountain. Villasenor was able to take advantage, bucking and getting his opponent off so he could get back to his feet. Jacare was clearly the, aggress- clearly the aggressor and the superior fighter, in my opinion. He was just all over Villasenor uh, in that first round. And with about 20 seconds left, Jacare got a straight arm bar on, but the Villasenor was able to escape. So definitely a 10-9 round for Jacare. Yeah, you know, obviously not Khabib level, but Jacare at this time was really deadly with his submissions in the cage. And, you know, he was somebody who you did not want to go to the mat with. And I think that in this fight, you know, that, that was the difference was that Jacare just was constantly trying to apply these submission holds. And Villasenor is scrappy. He's kind of a dirty boxy boxing kind of guy. Uh, you know, he, he's tough, but, but Jacare just kept applying the pressure over and over and over. And in this round, um, just there was not really much that Joey could do. Yeah, there was. Uh, yeah, there's just not much you could do. You're 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 right on. So, 
Uh, but Jacques Ray got a takedown early in the second round. Senor was able to scramble and get a very nice escape. And this seemed to give the Jackson Wink fighter some confidence, and he got looser on his feet, landing some strikes. However, Jacare withstood those and got another takedown, dropping more strikes from the top, more groundwork uh, to end the round. Much better round for Senor, but still 10-9 for Jacare because of the takedowns. Yeah, you know, same same thing this round. Jacare just kind of took control. Senor is trying to make something happen. You know, he, he did. You know, it was a better round for him, but uh, it's just nothing you can do. If you can't breathe, if you can't do anything to me on offense and you're so consumed with defense – I mean, there's just no game plan there, uh, and he was he was outmatched for sure. Yeah, no question about that. Uh, and then Villasenor early on in the third round landed a good right hand, and there was blood coming out of the nose and mouth of Jacare, and he went for a takedown, but uh, that's Jacare, but Villasenor stuffed it very, very nice, and it seemed like Villasenor had better conditioning, was turning things around. He stuffed another takedown, and it looked like Jacare was getting tired. However, the Brazilian took advantage of a missed strike and finally got a takedown halfway through the final frame. Jacare was working hard trying to strike and improve his position, which ate up a minute and a half, but the ref didn't like it and stood things up with just under a minute left in the fight. Villasenor knew he was behind and went after it, throwing punches and a flying knee, but Jacare grabbed him and took him down again, and that would be the, the, the end of things. That takedown that Jacare did, it was like 301 of the round. It was amazing. I don't, I don't remember if you, if you remember it. I don't know if you remember it, but it was just – so sweet, and it was just like this fight's over. Took him down, and Joey just had nothing left. Um, and, you know, Jacare fought a little bit conservatively. Uh, that's what he does. He's a submission guy, and he's kind of like Jake Shields, a little more exciting than Jake Shields was at this time. But just that's how you win. So you got to win. That's that's the goal. Yeah. Super dangerous. You got to you got to do what you got to do. Jacare likely didn't gain a lot of new fans by his performance. And I kind of felt like if, if this had been like a title fight, if it had gone into like a fourth and a fifth round, that it could have had a different, uh, you know, a different outcome. Cause it just, it just seemed like the senior was getting stronger while Jacare was getting weaker, but those takedowns were clearly the difference. A good fight for him. He was obviously a contender for the strike force middleweight title. You know, we're going to see what's, you know, what's going to happen with Jake Shields and the belt. If things were in flux, we'd have to see, you know, what Jacare's next steps would be after that. Uh, but he would be back a few months later to tangle with Tim Kennedy. While this would be it for Villasenor and Strikeforce, he would compete in a handful of fights after this, ending his career in 2012 at 29 and 10. I believe he is still coaching at Jackson Wink today. So, you know, not 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 a name that's remembered by a ton of people today. You know, somebody that's talked about as one of the greats or anything like that, but a very, very talented and serviceable pro that would always put throw everything into every fight. Um, you know, I don't remember seeing a boring fight with Joey Villasenor in it, so hats off to him, and, and it seems like he's doing well uh, today. But this brings us to the co-main event. At a, uh, in a heavyweight bout, Bigfoot Silva defeated Andre Arlovsky via unanimous decision. Bigfoot was a former Elite XC heavyweight champion. He was 13-2 and two with nine knockouts and three submissions. He was coming off a competitive unanimous decision loss to Fabricio Verdun the previous November in his strike force debut, debut, but he had won his previous six bouts before that. Arlovsky, of course, former UFC heavyweight champion, was 15-7 and seven with 11 knockouts and three submissions. He was coming off two huge knockout losses with one to Fedor and one in St. Louis to Brett Rogers the previous year. Yeah, I was not too excited about this fight. I never really liked Bigfoot's fighting style. Um, I don't know. There's We've talked about this. There's something about him that I just, I don't know. He's just not somebody I, I ever look forward to seeing fight. I really do like uh, Andre Arlovsky's fighting style, but 
What's up with those fangs? The teeth? They're always, always <laughs> You didn't like that? He's the pit bull. Come on, it, he's the pit bull. It freaked me out. It looked real. Like, I'm like, this guy, did he do something to his teeth to actually go grow <laughs> these fangs? Like, like no, but he looks like, I mean, Arlovsky is, he's not a kind of guy you want mad at you. I mean, he just has this, like, intense look. I'm like, those fangs. Anyway, um, I, I around this time, I was really sad for Andre Arlovsky because he had been knocked out twice really bad and then he's going in there and he did much better here against bigfoot but you know at the end of the day it was just about survival yeah you you're you hit it you hit the nail on the head with that that he are those i mean the fedor knockout where he you know went for the jumping knee and fedor just perfectly timed the overhand right and just blasted him and then he gets knocked out and i think it was 22 seconds by brett rogers you know in his strike force debut i mean he was not in a good he was not in a good situation, and he really needed to have a good showing here. Uh, but as the fight started, big weight and height advantage for Bigfoot as he was 20 pounds heavier with a five-inch reach advantage. Huge crowd reaction for Arlovsky. I read about the uh, the weigh-ins. There was a big reaction for Arlovsky there, so clearly he was the fan favorite. Some pretty, pretty, boo- pretty big boos for Bigfoot. Uh, lots of boxing to start things off with both fighters looking comfortable on their feet and Neither fighter was landing much, though Landa, uh, Silva landed a, a nice shot a couple of minutes in, though Arlovsky seemed pretty pretty nonplussed by it. So, whoa, whoa, yeah. whoa, whoa. Phil, did you say nonplussed? This, yes, is, an, this is an MMA podcast. I, I don't think our audience knows what the word nonplussed means, but if you're <laughs> – <laughs> sorry, I'm going Bobby Heenan here. No, but <laughs> if you're going to say nonplussed, just forget it. How about he no-sold it? Come on, Arlovsky right, no-sold the punch. Okay. Fine, he no-sold the plus. Not, and, non-plus but, is like 11th grade high school vocabulary. Come on. Well, if you're gonna, <laughs> but if you're going to heal on me, I'm going to go babyface and say that I believe that our intelligent, well-educated audience would know what non-plus <laughs> is. So I, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and say that they're smart enough while you're clearly saying they're not. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm the baby. I'm gor- I'm Gorilla Monsoon to your Bobby Heenan. How about that? Let's be real. Our audience doesn't know the difference between a wrist lock, lock and a wrist watch. <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> I knew that was as soon as you started saying they don't know the difference. I was like, he's going with wrist watch and wrist lock. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Well played. All right. Back to the fight. Uh, Silva would land a few more good shots a short time later, drawing blood from the pit bull and, he was, you know, it's, it's, Arlovsky was really known for being like a really strong boxer. He put a lot of training into his boxing, but Bigfoot really, he had the better, he had better, just better boxing. And it, that did not bode well for Arlovsky. Uh, I mean, he was no slouch on the mat. He was a Sambo champion, but he had not, uh, as Mario pointed out on the broadcast, he had not won a, 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 he had not won a victory with a submission in almost five years. So that really, I mean, he had really prided himself on his, his boxing and Bigfoot was outboxing him. So that was a really bad sign for the former UFC champion and things moved to the mat with Bigfoot on top. And that's where the round ended 10, nine Silva. I think Arlovsky just showed way too much respect for, for Bigfoot here. I mean, Arlovsky is a knockout artist. That's, that's how he wins. Um, but he just was too tentative. And I, I don't know if it was bad coaching or just, you know, you looking at Bigfoot and be like, Holy cow, am I going to knock this guy out? I don't know. But, uh, Way too much respect. You gotta go in there. I mean, Bigfoot had a glass jaw. He yeah. just needed to hit him. I don't think he. I mean, that wasn't really known at that point. I mean, you look at because he only had the two losses, and you, one of at least one of them was by decision. But 
um, you know, now looking at him now, yeah, I mean, everybody knows that that he's just he's taken way too many knockouts, and I, he's one of the guys that I worry about long term, mm-hmm. just because he's had so many, he's been finished with strikes so many times. But uh, Arlovsky, after this fight, he gave it a, an interview, and he said that he let down his coaches. That essentially the game plan. It's kind of funny that you say that you know bad coaching, but he said the game plan was essentially to box and circle to, I think to his right, basically whatever away mm-hmm. from the pow- uh, away from the power. A Bigfoot in that he just said, you know, I, I just didn't execute. So mm-hmm. it sounded like he had good coaching, although if that's your entire game plan is to just stay in the pocket and avoid the power, I, I, don't, I don't know that that's, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know that that's the direction to go. But, uh, you know, it, whether it was bad coaching or bad execution or a mix of both, Arlovsky to me is just not a high-level fighter from a mental perspective, that there's just been way too many of these fights where – he based on talent should have won, you know, and, and, but because of his look and it, and his, I honestly think part of the reason why he keeps getting fights is also that when he loses, he usually loses in pretty spectacular fashion. <laughs> yeah. And when he wins, he usually wins in pretty, I mean, if I remember correctly, his record right now, I believe is 30 and 20 or it's right around there. Oh my so, goodness. you know, I mean, how many guys do you see continue fighting, to age 40 with, you know, in the UFC and he's been back with them for quite a while and it's just, you know, it keeps getting fights. So yeah, it, it, it's just, I, I don't know what to point to with him, but uh, to me, I think it was just mental shortcomings as far as his game plan and then execution as well. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. but uh, more good boxing from Bigfoot in the early part of the second round with Arlovsky being forced to eat more shots. The two clinched against the cage, which big John McCarthy separated due to inactivity both fighters, you know, they're grinding, sweating, breathing heavily. Neither was standing out as the round moved towards the close. But Bigfoot did land some more good strikes. Just overall, though, there was just not a ton of action in the second round. Another 10-9 round for Silva. Yeah, he just had a hard time getting off. He just seemed out of sync uh, and out of range. Bigfoot is awkward to fight. He's big and thick and lanky and broad. So, yeah, he just could not solve that puzzle at all. Yeah. The Pitbull pit must have known he needed a finish to get the win, and he came out trying to press the action with his boxing in the final round. Bigfoot used his strikes to drive Arlovsky against the fence once again, working in that clinch. Once again, Big John separated, separated the two due to inactivity, and but Silva was just he was just a lot more accurate with his strikes. Arlovsky, despite good form and, and good foot movement, just missed a lot with his punches. And uh, later on in the round, Big, Bigfoot got a nice lift and drop takedown. There was about a minute and a half left. He landed in Arlovsky's guard, and not much really happened there. Arlovsky was able to get things back to the feet with about 20 seconds left, and Arlovsky went for it, and Bigfoot actually lifted his hands like, I've, you know, I won. I don't know if he thought the, the round was over or what, yeah. but and then he realized the fight was still going on, and Arlovsky you know, went at him, but then Bigfoot knew that Arlovsky was no danger to him and started doing this little kind of dance, kind of taunting thing, and just stayed out of the way of danger and clear decision win for, for the Brazilian. No, no question about it. Yeah. Arlovsky, he just didn't have it. Maybe it's a moral victory for him that he went three rounds with a, a top guy at the time, but yeah, it was not his best night. I thought the fight was kind of boring. It's one of the reasons I don't like Bigfoot either. I just, I just feel like he's never spectacular himself. Um, when, you know, he's, the last two guys that fought Arlovsky knocked him out in 30 seconds, you know, and Bigfoot's over here having trouble with him. So anyway, I didn't like this fight. Yeah, I wasn't a big fan of it either. And it may have been a moral victory for Arlovsky, but he desperately, desperately needed a real victory. 
you know, so just I no, not a good situation for the pit bull at all. And, you know, Bigfoot. Yeah. I mean, the guy's got incredible power. He was born with uh, uh, acromegaly and, and, you know, he, he just was a huge guy and had obviously massive power and a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt too. So it's like, you know, take Arlovsky down then and submit him, you know, but yeah, it was, it was clear with, you know, when they stand with 20 seconds left and he's already lifting his hands and just dancing out, he wasn't trying to finish. He was, he knew he had the decision win. So why not just take that? So yeah, neither fighter really, I don't think either fighter really moved themselves too much forward with this. So we're at their performance. But regardless of that, both of them would be back in Strike Force. Bigfoot would return in December of 2010. Arlovsky would be back in 2011. But here we are. We have arrived at the main event heavyweight title fight. Alistair Overeem defeated Brett Rogers via TKO, coming by way of punches at 340 of the first round to retain that Strike Force heavyweight championship. Rogers was 10 and 1 with nine KOs and one submission coming in. And the last time he had fought again had been. Uh, that knockout of Arlovsky in under 30 seconds in St. Louis. So uh, that was, uh, uh, you know, that was a, that was, I'm sorry, that was the last time he had fought in St. Louis. I want to make that clear. Not the last time he fought because he'd lost to Fedor prior to this, but clearly this was a good place for him. And he was clearly fearing, feeling confident based on his pre-fight interviews. Uh, Overeem was 32 and 11 with 12 KOs and 19 submissions. I, you know, I, I did not, people kind of forget about that, that, you know, Hey, he was a kickboxer and that sort of thing. But, Overeem, especially early on, had a lot of submissions, submission wins, and he was a very, very good uh, submission fighter. And he doesn't, I don't think he gets enough credit for that. Uh, also, you know, that's, uh, I can't do math super, super well, but that's 30, see, 19 and 12 is 29, 31 out of his 32 wins at that point were finishes. I mean, you talk about a finishing rate, that's pretty amazing. He's since gone on to have a fair amount of, uh, of decisions. But, you know, definitely a guy that goes for the finish. And uh, ironically, I believe his only win. So if I'm if my math is correct, you remember that he headlined the second strike force again event against Vitor Belfort in that horribly boring mm. uh, decision win. So mm. I think that was his only I think that was his only win that didn't come by a, a KO or a submission. So here we are back here. And, you know, now he's got a chance to, again, kind of kind of reprove himself within Strike Force. He had won seven of eight bouts in various promotions since he'd last competed for Strike Force and had also fought in some kickboxing bouts and gotten some wins in K1 as well. But you could see, man, the Ream was in full heavyweight mode now. Uh, 205 pounds was far in the rear view for the champion at this point. I mean, we would see him even beefier and more cut in the future, and the, the, the bout with Brock Lesnar comes to mind. But he was definitely a fully filled out heavyweight at this point, a big dude for, for, you know, for sure. No doubt about that. Uh, but as the bell rang, some, some trading of some strikes early on Overeem shucked Rogers to the mat. And you know, it was very powerful, very impressive. I do think Rogers was kind of tripping a little bit, but you know, I do think he was kind of a little bit off balance, but it was definitely an impressive move. And the champ took advantage. He got side mount and worked some strikes against the cage. He wasn't able to do much until he suddenly started landing some heavy blows and Rogers was just covering up and offering no defense at all. And he was completely, it was clear. He was completely out of his depth uh, from his back and the demolition man poured it on. And with Rogers not responding, big John McCarthy stopped the fight and, and that was it. Dominant win for the champ. Well, Phil, I'm going to stay in my heel mode here and be a little ah. harsh. Um, Rogers was just too fat. I mean, he was out of shape. He was in no position to be 
anywhere, you know, near the 10th row even of Alistair Overeem. I mean, this guy was not prepared to fight at all. And it was really sad because this is the same guy who was in there with with Fedor and almost pulled off the upset before um, Fabricio Verdum would, right? I mean, this guy was on national television almost pulling off one of the biggest heavyweight upsets of all time. And here he is in this fight, and he looks like he shouldn't even be in the building. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. Uh, you know, you've got to, as you know, I think it's Jim Ross, or he, maybe he's not the only one, but you've got to dance with what brung you, okay? You can't get into these big fights, and then all of a sudden stop training, and all of a sudden stop doing everything that you did in order to get there. He lost his hunger, and, and, and now, now, obviously, Overeem is a great fighter, experienced multi-disciplined you're 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 going to be the underdog no matter what i mean but come on you've got to do more i mean did he have a game plan what was his game plan he had no game plan never never got to show it to be honest with you he never really got a chance he just went in there and he's like i'm maybe gonna land a lucky punch and and knock over him out and over him knows i mean if you look at alistair over body I mean, he is a natural, what is he, a natural middleweight, a light heavyweight? I mean, this is a skinny kid, okay? Yeah. So, yes, you can put on all that muscle and do whatever he did to get there. But underneath that all, like your core, you're still a small guy. So, Alistair, because he knows that, he fights really technical. He's smart. He's not just a go, let me submit you, let me go knock you out. He's a great defensive fighter. Um, he's tactical, so you can't go in there against Alistair Overeem and just expect to land a lucky punch and, and knock him out. I mean, Rogers, <laughs> he just did not belong there. He came in cold, bone dry. It wasn't even, he didn't have no sweat. He wasn't warmed up. And then Overeem just, like, demoralizes him by tossing him like he's Hornswoggle. Just, like, literally just throws him. And it's like, it's over, dude. Like, Alistair's not going to let you up because the small percentage chance you have of winning this fight is by knockout. So you're not getting up, dude. And so Overeem just pounded him over and over. And and Brett had really no ability to even try to counter any of that. He couldn't scramble. There was nothing that he could, he couldn't, you know, do any risk control, nothing. He just basically got pummeled until he quit, turned his back, and it, it was all over. And, you know, the saddest part is Rogers looked scared. He just did not look like a guy who wanted to be in the in the hexagon that night. Yeah. I mean, you know, they interviewed him before the fight backstage, and he seemed to be really confident. Um, you know, he seemed like he felt like he was ready, but clearly he was just, you know, look, bottom line is he was not an elite fighter. You know, he had been uh, he'd been beaten by Fedor, knocked out, which I thought I thought was too much too soon. Um, and then this one, you know, solidified that he was not going to be a guy that was going to be winning the title. And so I don't know anything about his you know preparation for this outside of what they said on the, the broadcast. Um, you know, they weren't he wasn't even in the cage long enough for them to really get into whatever preparation that he had. But uh, to me, his you know, he had no no ground game. You know, he had nothing to offer from his back. And Overeem, obviously, we talked about it. he had 19 submission wins coming into this. So he was obviously very well-versed on the ground. And, and so, you know, that I think he just thought, oh, he, Reem's going to stand, and I'm going to stand, and I'm going to knock him out. And, 
just wasn't prepared for anything else. So it was not a good showing for him. I to you know it was really the beginning. Not wasn't the beginning. The the Fedor fight was really the beginning. But this was the confirmation that this was a good heavyweight, but not a great one. And Overeem just you know proved that once and for all. So unfortunate for Rogers for sure. Uh, but but Overeem was just he was in full Reem mode at that point, and uh, it would have been tough for anybody to beat him. And in, in his fo- post fight interview, he said he wanted to fight Fedor next, claiming that the last emperor had declined to fight him. And, you know, that, that is a fight I, I would have always, you know, I, I'll put the fade or Brock proposed fight as like the one that I really wish we could have seen, but I would have loved to have seen Overeem and Fedor as well. And I'm bummed that we didn't really get to see those two in their prime. There's, as we record this in June of 2021, you know, uh, um, I believe Overeem is still a free agent. I don't think he signed with anybody. So there is the, Hey, could we see that as part of Fedor's retirement tour? And, I, you know, I got to say, I would probably tune in if I had access to it. I, I probably would watch it. I just obviously wouldn't be what it would have been if it had been even in 2010. Um, but, you know, that it's still a, a pretty intriguing fight as, as both of these guys seemingly wrap up their careers. But both uh, Overeem and Rogers would be back one more time in strike force, and those bouts would be in 2011. And so this whole, hey, Overeem's back, and Coker's saying, hey, we're going to try to fight him every other month, and, you know, all this stuff – just and it did not materialize for whatever reason and it's really unfortunate that Overeem never really had an extended run with Strike Force. Uh, I feel like he could have built himself up even further before going to the UFC but it is what it is I, I felt like you know I don't know how you feel about heavyweights overall but Strike Force never really focused on the heavyweight division until the Grand Prix mm-hmm. uh, which was I believe they'd already been if I remember correctly I think they'd already been no, no, they had not been purchased yet. No, they had not been purchased by the UFC. UFC started bringing over those heavyweights. But to me, that we, it could have been an opportunity for them to really differentiate themselves because you think about it, back then in the UFC, um, you know, you, that was the, probably their weakest division. Outside of the UFC, you have Overeem, you have Arlovsky's gone, or uh, Arlovsky's, you know, not, not in the UFC anymore. You've got uh, Bigfoot Silva. You've got Josh Barnett floating around out there. You've got Mirko Krokop. I don't know if he was in the UFC at this point, but, you know, he hadn't been. Uh, you know, again, we if I hadn't already mentioned him, Fedor. I mean, you had a bunch of heavyweights that were not signed with the UFC. To me, that was a real opportunity for Strikeforce to differentiate itself, which I think they recognized and started doing with the the heavyweight Grand Prix. But, you know, then they ended up getting bought up. So I, I, you know, Overeem didn't have a ton of heavyweights in Strikeforce at this moment that, you know, he was going to be matched up with that were going to be super interesting fights. I mean, what's he going to do? You know, not going to take on Arlovsky. Um, he's, uh, you know, obviously Silva hadn't really impressed. And so it's Fedor and that's what he said he wanted. And for whatever reason that didn't happen. So I, I really would have liked to have seen Overeen, you know, get more of an extended run with strike force. He, if I remember correctly, he was scheduled to be in the, uh, the heavyweight grand prix and I think got injured and, and had to pull out. So, I mean, they did have further plans for him, but it would have liked to see him. I would have liked to have seen him get a real extended run with Did, the promotion. You know, Overeem and Daniel Cormier, that would have been a hell of a fight. Yeah, that would have been a super intriguing fight yeah. for sure. So, but uh, anyways, all right, well, let's wrap things up. Um, no fighters pop for drugs of abuse or performance enhancers after the event. No salaries were made available, so I don't have any of that information, unfortunately. So to kind of recap things, I, I didn't love this event. Um, I mean, it had its moments, including Fajal's knockout and Overeem's return, but 
really no then signature strike force stars, you know, no big highlights that really stand out. It's clear that Brett Rogers had a ceiling and he would not be an elite heavyweight, you know, over him. If he had stuck around, then maybe this would have been a launching pad for him as a big star within strike force, but it would be 13 months before he'd be back. And, and then he'd head over to the UFC after that. Jacques Ray was clearly a fighter to watch, but I think he, I felt like he'd been exposed a bit by via senior. So, I mean, really the only fighter that really stood out, would be Feijiao, you know, coming out of this, I think. So, uh, you know, and he would get matched up for a, heavy, a light heavyweight title fight after this. So, uh, you know, not, yeah, just kind of a skippable, forgettable event, unfortunately, Josh. But w- what did you think? I agree with you. It was a mixed bag. Nothing seemed quite right or perfect with this show. I mean, Overeem's fight was probably the most impressive thing that we were able to see, but the sheen was definitely off of Brett Rogers. So we were kind of expecting it at this point. Silva um, and Arlovsky was kind of boring. And, uh, you know, Hodger Gracie, Kevin Randleman, that was kind of a bad matchup. It just, I didn't feel good after watching that. I was not happy after Randleman lost. And uh, Antoine Britt did not put up much of a fight either. Uh, uh, Jacare Villasenor, who was a decent fight, that was probably the best, you know, matchup on the card. I think the big issue here was none of these fighters had any real strong character or personality. Uh, There was nobody on this show who you could kind of root for because they were a trash talker or, you know, somebody you love to hate or even somebody you just like wildly wanted to cheer for. It was just sort of kind of like some average fighters with, you know, some exceptions, obviously. Um, So I think that was part of it. It was not really clearly defined. Uh, Obviously, Overeem is the biggest star in the show, but I mean, he's never been great on the mic and, He's always super, super humble. So just not a lot of personality to the show. So it was what it was. It was not Nashville. It was better than Nashville, but it also was not that memorable. Oh, you didn't have to be much better to be better than Nashville. Uh, (laughs) But I think you made a really good point, Josh, that I hadn't really thought about there was that just the lack of personality and really the lack of storyline. And, you know, as we, as we record these, as we watch these events and we do our research, you know, I, I kind of, I try to find what's the story, like what's the storyline for this event? Like what's, what are we trying to communicate? What, you know, or what was Strikeforce trying to communicate with this? And so you have, you know, like the Gilbert, Josh Thompson fights and like, and that's an obvious story or you match up uh, Gilbert with like a Shinya Aoki, who is the best in Japan versus, you know, or one of the best in Japan versus one of the best in, in the U S they're just, you know, you have these different stories. You have Dan Henderson, the old, you know, the old dog that's coming in with the, as the, as the favorite over the champion and Jake Shields, who wants to prove himself. Like there were big stories on that last, that last card, you know, Fedor fighting on CBS. Like that's, is he still Fedor? And there's just, there seems to be these, these stories. And this one just didn't have one. It was Overeem returns. And that was really it. There wasn't, you know, there was no, there was no blood feud matchup on here. There was, you know, not a, like you said, not a bunch of personalities or trash talk or, you know, a few of them didn't speak English very well. And so there wasn't, you know, going to be a huge uh, buildup with them and, 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 you know, in the in front of the American audience. So, yeah, it just they're just I can't tell you what the story was here other than Overeem's back and then he's gone for 13 months. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think that's what makes this such a skippable, forgettable event is, is just the lack of signature moments or signature stars on this. So yeah, yeah. thinks about rap, think that about wraps things up. So coming up next, I'm, I am very excited about this episode. It is the most personal 
episode that that we've done here on Inside the Hexagon for me for sure. Uh, I'm going to sit down with Ron Foster, who is uh, the former matchmaker of Shine Fights. And he is just a great, great, um, just a really good guy. Uh, really, really good guy. I, I really have a lot of respect for Ron. Um, and we got to be friends back in the day. We worked on this event called Shine Fights Worlds Collide. And this was an event that was taking place in North Carolina. I referenced this earlier. Um, but it was taking place in North Carolina on the same day as Strike Force Heavy Artillery. And that's essentially why we're going to talk about that. I mean, you might ask, why am I going to hear an episode on another promotion on a podcast about the history of Strike Force? But that's because Worlds Collide took place the same night as Heavy Artillery. And it is one of, I think, one of the craziest stories in MMA history with a nod towards, again, I may use that cliche too much. But there's a world champion boxer involved in Ricardo, uh, Ricardo Mayorga. Don King essentially gets the event canceled potential moles within the company that are informing Don King side fighters crying backstage. I almost got beat up backstage. I mean, you know, with the event getting canceled 20 minutes before bell time, some really good fighters on the card. And I mean, just a, I didn't have a ticket home from North Carolina when the event got canceled. I mean, it's a pretty crazy story. And so we sit down for, for over an hour and we talk about this event and we walk through it and I learned some things that I didn't know about the event and it was really interesting to hear Ron's perspective and I encourage you there's some there's some good articles in-depth articles out there about the shine fights worlds collide debacle um, you feel free to read up on those but if not we're going to tell you the story and and I think you're going to really enjoy it I don't think that you I don't think that you're going to you're going to want to miss it because it's it's a very very intriguing story if I do say so myself so stay tuned for that uh, I think it's going to be a, a very very interesting episode but make sure that you get in touch with us. You can follow us on social media at the Hexgun Pod on Twitter and on Instagram. And I just do not have the time to be active on there at this point. If you are interested in helping us with social media, uh, please reach out to me. You can reach me at phil at insidethexagon.com. We would love to have some help with social media. Uh, if I could get a coordinator, I can definitely help provide content. But we're just, I just do not, my, with my job and family responsibilities and other responsibilities in my life, I just do not have time to, to be promoting on social media like I know I should be. Uh, you know, the time that I have for this podcast goes into the, the research, the recording, and the editing. And that's just, unfortunately, that's really all I have time for. So uh, if you can, please, uh, please reach out and let me know if you'd be, be interested in, in, uh, in chatting. Uh, after the Ron Foster episode, we're going to be talking about Strike Force Los Angeles. Uh, pretty short card. There's only six total fights on it, but we do have Robbie Lawler on there as well as Bobby Lashley. So there's some interesting fights to get into. The week after that, we have gotten an agreement from KJ Noons to come on and talk about his run with Strike Force. He fought on that Los Angeles card, making his Strike Force debut. Uh, so we're going to talk about that and 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 we're going to talk with KJ, uh, assuming that we're able to to get it on the books. But he's agreed, and so I'm looking forward to chatting with him. And you know, we'll talk about his Nick Diaz feud and uh, some of the fights that he had. A very controversial fight with with George Gergel or Jorge. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, George Gergel in Strike Force. So there's a lot to get to on that one. So that'll be coming after uh, up after that. Uh, but with that, we are going to ride off into the sunset. We hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy, and we will see you soon.
Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. 